You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. CFOs and controllers, there's a better way to manage cards, expenses, travel, and reimbursements. You need a unified spend platform from Brex that lets you control all your spend in one place, automate compliance, and close the books faster. Get started at Brex.com. With me today is director David Rutura, who has led productions regionally as well as off-Broadway. But on Broadway, his role has been as assistant or associate. If the podcast title is Why I'll Never Make It, I mean, part of the reason is it's just not my time yet. And and that's okay. And I have lots of projects and it, it takes a lot of luck. And that luck just hasn't come my way yet. Hello and welcome to Why I'll Never Make It featuring insightful stories and conversations with fellow creatives on the realities of a career in the performing arts. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones. Please go to whyillnevermakeit.com and take this season's podcast survey to give feedback and direction in the future of this podcast. And speaking of direction, in addition to his shows on Broadway, David Rutura was my director of Footloose on Norwegian Cruise Line. For three weeks last September and then two weeks in October on board the ship, he led our cast in telling a 90-minute version of that classic 1984 motion picture. But the main thrust of his work has been on Broadway. In fact, he's been a part of nine directing teams, but he hasn't quite been at the top of the food chain just yet. We talk about what's held him back from that top spot, as well as the stigma of working on cruise ships. Like me, David lives here in New York City and is actually several blocks uptown from my apartment here in Washington Heights. So both of us have been hunkering down here since the quarantines and shutdowns of this pandemic. He joins me via Zoom, and you may notice a slight reduction in audio quality from other episodes. But there is certainly no reduction in the quality of this conversation. In fact, apart from emails and social media, this is actually the first conversation David and I have had since we opened Footloose last October. And as soon as his video popped up on Zoom, I noticed all his hair was gone. Well, it was very long and, you know, I'm in New York, so I uh, had my girlfriend shave it off with a trimmer that is probably not for... Has she ever cut your hair before? No, no, I would never. It's, you know, but like this, it's like, I don't know. I I used to do it when I was a kid, not a kid, but like in college when, you know, you didn't have any money. Right. Yeah. And uh, it was like, well, I could either spend $20 on food or $20 on a haircut. Um, And now the older that I've gotten, the more money I spend on my haircut and the more important it comes. And so COVID has certainly given me a reality check for, um, you know, vanity. (laughs) (laughs) Very true. Very true. No, no, I I did the same whenever I was in uh, Adam's family. Whenever I went on for Lurch, they buzzed my hair. So that was the first time I'd ever like lost all my hair because I'd always had this full head. So it was very different to to go to just like this like buzz. It it felt very strange. It's very strange. And, and, um, you know, it, it, 
you know, I, I do look like 11. <laughs> well, you, you've always had a baby face anyway. So then, yeah. so it makes it makes me look even younger, which doesn't, which isn't necessarily great when you're a director. <laughs> who's that, who's that 17 year old in the room telling me what to do? <laughs> do you get that a lot that, that your age appearance affects how people perceive you? Um, you know, it, it's funny. I, I've always sort of dis, I mean, in my head, I decided that it was, it was something that was a, a bit of a, a block for getting jobs in the room. I, you know, I've, especially when I was younger and like, now it's not as I'm 30, 37 years old. So like, you know, I'm not a kid and, and, um, you know, I still look, I, I don't know. I feels funny to say, I look, don't I look younger? <laughs> um, but, but, um, you know, when I was younger and doing like in rooms with people much older, especially in my twenties and, you know, and suddenly I'm giving notes to people who have Tony awards and who have, you know, all this experience. Um, it, it, it was, I think it was more of a hang up for me than it was for them. And I think it, it ended up, I ended up realizing that actually the title gives you the the authority. So like in, in those situations, I was usually the associate director. So like it, my voice was the voice of the director. So it was something that like, I think for me being young in a room and be and looking younger wasn't a problem for the other people because generally the people that I work for, they respected and valued their opinion. And I was always sort of coming and saying, this is what they're thinking. This is how I'm interpreting that. What do you think? And let's have this conversation. Um, so I, I don't think it was a problem. I mean, it would be interesting to ask some of the people back then that I was giving notes to whether they thought it was a problem or whether they resented that, you know, a 26 year old who looked like he was 18 <laughs> was saying, I don't think that that choice was so great. <laughs> Those Broadway shows he's given notes for have ranged from musicals like White Christmas, Million Dollar Quartet, Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark, and School of Rock, as well as plays like Lombardi and most recently Network, starring Brian Cranston. He was also a resident director for a time on the Phantom of the Opera National Tour. Now, in this list, of course, that doesn't even include all of his off-Broadway and regional productions. In fact, he got his start at the same theater that offered me my first show when I moved to New York City, Gateway Playhouse. Since 1950, this Long Island theater has brought musicals to the region every summer, casting leads from Broadway, film, and television. But it's also where a lot of actors and technicians and other creatives get their start. Uh, and, and that theater gave me a ton of opportunities. And the first, what, like, and whether, whether you can argue it was professional or not, the first professional directing job that I had on my own was directing children's theater shows there. Mm. Um, and so I was probably... Uh, I want to say like 22, maybe. Which is still young in director world. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, and, and I was really lucky because they, they you know, Paul Allen and his sister, Robin Allen, who uh, Robin, unfortunately, is no longer with us, but Paul uh, still runs that theater. And, you know, they believed in me at a really early age. Um, and I still go out there now and I direct main stage shows there and, um, you know, but that was really the first time that I felt like I had a responsibility and there was um, there was financial weight behind something that I was directing, you know, because I did mm -hmm. directed a lot in I mean, my degree is in directing. So I directed a lot in college and in high school. And then but that was really the first time that someone was like, OK, so this production needs to be 
at a certain, the expectations are at a certain level that people who are coming to see it need to enjoy it because they paid money and the theater depends on this, which mm -hmm. I think is like, a, which is a pressure that directors feel that I don't think people talk about a lot that like, not only is there, um, not only is there uh, a, a sort of need to sort of create something that you respond to that you, that you believe in. It's also like, other people need to like it too. Um, and that's a, that's a big learning lesson. I think that directors have to, have to deal with. And, and the, you know, it's also one of those things where like suddenly it was the first time that a producer was coming in and saying, I don't understand what that moment is. Like, what are you trying to do there? Like, that doesn't make any sense. And in, you know, in my, my, you know, 22 year old brain, I was like, this is Peter Pan. And like, we're doing a new version and, and this is wild. Um, and, and I'm, I, I have all these ideas and some of them worked and some of them didn't. I'm still very proud of that production, I will say. <laughs> but, uh, but, but it was like, it was a huge learning experience because it was that, you know, prior to that, like I directed the play version of spring awakening in college as my senior thesis, which was like so edgy. Um, and, but, but like you, you're, you're not accountable to anyone but yourself and your professor right. who either, you know, and, and, and they're looking at it in a completely different way because it's not about, that's about your growth as an artist. When you're directing something for a, a theater, it's about their audience enjoying the experience of being a part of that theater, um, mm. which is a totally different mindset. Um, it's also very different to direct Peter Pan than it is to direct Spring Awakening. But. Yes, yes, two <laughs> totally different productions. Yeah. From the, the, the Broadway to off-Broadway and regional productions that you've done, I assume that the main function of you directing actors to tell a story, that remains fairly consistent across yeah. the board. But how does the, the, the creative, the business aspect of being a director, you know, basically what goes on behind the scenes, how does that change in the various venues? My, I mean, obviously I've not directed my own Broadway show, but I have a lot of associate directing experience. And the interesting thing about being an associate director or a resident director who maintains the show after opening is your job is, you know, it, it is two parts. It is creative in the sense that you recast, you rehearse, you make sure the understudies are ready, you know, you, you deal with any creative problems, but then you do deal with a lot of the business aspects of it and a lot of the management part of it. Um, and, and, you know, and Broadway is a, Broadway is a business first and foremost, like that is what, that is what we're doing there. Um, it is, it is a, com a commercial enterprise. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting as, as shows are, you know, I've worked on shows that have been very successful. I've also worked on shows that have seemed successful, but were not. I've worked on shows that have been, you know, outward flops and, and, you know, I maintain them through the run at all different stages. But what's interesting is like what, you know, shows have like, you know, they have this kind of trajectory um, where like money's coming in, money's coming in. Oh no, it's not. Oh, we're on our way to close. And then we're out. And the way that the conversations every, you know, once it opens and it's successful, assuming that it's successful, you know, things like you can rehearse whenever you want. You can have this on stage rehearsal. You can do that. Are, you know, those questions are very easily answered as things start to get a little bit harder and, or, or like you're in the fall when, when, you know, ticket sales are down or in January, February, you start to have to think you as a creative person have to think about, well, what's the objective here? Like, what are we trying to do? We, we need to replace these actors. We have these sort of, um, you know, we, there's this, these different points that we have to hit. How can we do that in the most efficient way possible? Because, 
you start spending money left and right. And no one likes to think about that, but it's important. And like, if we all want jobs, we all have to think about how much money we're spending as we maintain something very creative, Um, especially because in the early days, like as an associate, like I wasn't staying on, like opening would happen and then we'd be gone and the stage manager would take over. Now, through my time as an associate, I mean, it's really shifted where almost every musical now has an associate of some kind that stays on with the show throughout. And I think, I actually think it's a great lesson for young directors to learn is that actually you don't get to just do whatever you want. Like you get to do what you need to do within the confines of a budget. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something as, as I, you know, as I also start directing on my own where like suddenly you're, you're, you're with your designer and you're creating something amazing Um, and then suddenly like it goes to bid at the shop and they're like, you're $150,000 over budget. And you're like, what do you mean? And then they're like, you have to cut something. And then you start having to make creative decisions based on financial restrictions, which sometimes can be extremely liberating. And and I think that it's, I, I don't think it's always like the bad man with the purse coming at you. It's sometimes like, like, well, you can do the same thing in a more theatrical way. And actually it it forces you to think more theatrically and creatively when you have a restriction, but like from a Broadway standpoint, like budget comes in all the time off Broadway, generally as an associate, I don't have to think about the budget much because it's very rare that an off Broadway show will keep the associate on all the way through those, those conversations come up more like with my boss um, where he's having to make a creative decision because they don't have the budget, especially on off-Broadway, the budgets are so small. And depending on how busy shops are, like prices go up, prices go down. Like it's a very, it's a very confusing thing. Directing off-Broadway shows, that conversation is like a constant, like the financial restrictions that we did um, Chick Flick the Musical off at the West Side. Um, And, you know, Jason Sherwood, who also designed Footloose, and I were designing both at the same time. And the budgets were like completely different for the two shows because Footloose had, had, you know, the cruise ship money and, and like that was a much more dream big sort of experience. Whereas Chick Flick was still, for an off Broadway show, had a significant budget. Um, But you know, we had all these plans of like this, this movie screen that came down and then you'd watch like clips of movies and then it would like rip away and the girls would be back there and they'd be singing the, the opening number like behind a screen. And then we, we, you know, the bid came in and that, that trick cost more than the entire set. So that went away. <laughs> you Isn't know, it crazy that something that's so simple in your yeah. brain costs so much when you put it on stage. Yeah. And it's about mechanics and it's about, you know, it's about materials like that, that in particular, like it, it was a scrim that also needed to be dense enough that we could project in front, uh, project movie images on in front of it. And, um, and then we wanted it to, we wanted it to like suck away into a, you know, like a little canister and, you know, and then, and then like the, the big thing, the, the thing that was holding the screen together was going to cantilever up into the grid so like it was a crazy idea. Yeah. Like, but we in our head, it was like it's just somebody back there with a rope. Like, it was a big deal. But you know, it then then all of a sudden it comes down to like how, you know, like what does it mean to hang that in in the air? And like when there are people under it and making sure that that doesn't fall down, and suddenly it just starts getting more and more expensive. Um, you know, I also used to produce shows off off Broadway, which were like, you know 
we were able to do things with nothing because we, it was all sweat equity. Like we did it. Like I, my dad and I, I you know, this one show, Electro in a One Piece, which we did, I don't know, like 2010, maybe, you know, like we designed this set and we had like, we, we ended up, we were able to raise like $20,000 and half of that goes to the theater. But then, you know, we wanted to do this set. So my dad and I built it in our, you know, in my driveway and like, you know, and the set designer built it in his apartment at that time. But you're, you can't do that. You know, as the budget, it's so funny because as the budget expands, restrictions start to come in, in terms of like how you can do it. Like we can't, on a Broadway show, you can't fix a prop. Like if I was like, oh, this pencil's gone, like gone bad somehow, like there's a system there and like people's jobs are at stake. So it's important that like, you know, the props, the props man buy the pencil and, you know, and there's a structure in place that, that protects people's jobs. That is, that also in, in many ways legitimizes Broadway in a lot of ways because they're better. I mean, the pencil is such a terrible example because those guys do amazing work. But it's also very true that something so small still has right. to go through a process. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a big, that's a major difference between all of the, you know, the, the sort of, you know, if Broadway is the pinnacle of, of our industry and as, as you go down the different sides of the, the triangle, like it gets easier and easier to just sort of be like, well, I'll just do it myself. Which doesn't, which which is sometimes amazing, and sometimes isn't the best way to do it. You know, like there are professionals that do these things better, and there's value in that. There's a lot of value in that. As you said, you've been uh, assistant or resident director, and I looked it up. It's it's nine shows that on Broadway that you've been a part of. Yeah. So, is your goal one day to be that lead director on Broadway, and what's involved in in making that transition? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know, the the thing about being a, a resident or an associate or an assistant, especially nowadays, is like there is a path there that like if I wanted to do that for the rest of my life, I mean, it's make good money, you know, as consistent as our our careers are. Um, but it is certainly not my dream. And and I always say that it, it's been um, it's been uh, my grad school in a lot of ways because I've been able, you know, through those nine shows on Broadway, there's also been like dozens of shows all over the world with different directors and, you know, all over the country and different theaters. And so I've been able to learn. I mean, I always thought of it for me. The reason why I wanted to do it was because I wanted to learn more. And I went to Fordham University at Lincoln Center and had a great experience there. But it wasn't it wasn't geared toward the the theater that I wanted to make. It was it was certainly more they were more interested in in more avant-garde things. And I was always more interested in commercial theater and Broadway and and and, and musicals in particular. Um, and so that that so associate work became my my entree into commercial theater. Um, and and I think making the leap has been is hard for anybody. I mean I don't know how you know, that every, you ask any director, there's, there's a million different paths. Why? And, and, you know, half of that turns into luck. So part of why, you know, if, if the, if the podcast title is why I'll never make it, I mean, part of the reason is it's just not my time yet. And, and that's okay. And I have lots of projects in, in, you know, well now with COVID, who knows, but, but like, it, it takes a lot of luck and that luck just hasn't come my way yet. And it's not frustrating. It's not sad. It's, it's actually, liberating because I'm working in all these other theaters and all these other different avenues and like directing a cruise ship show, which uh, I never thought I would do. And, and it was an amazing experience. Um, 
but you know, I, I think it's just time. And like, I've been able to meet, I know so many people because of this, and there are so many people that are rooting, I think are rooting for me. And, and, um, it's about patience. It's, it's also really hard to say like, well, Broadway, I want to work on Broadway. And it's like, that's 33 theaters in like, whatever it is, a 10 square block area in New York city. Like it's not, it's not the end all be all. And, you know, but it is great. And I hopefully we'll get there someday. <laughs> On November 28th, 2010, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark had its first preview performance. But it wasn't until June 14th the following year that it finally made its official Broadway opening. Not only did it have the longest preview run in Broadway history, it also had the largest budget ever, coming in at about $70, $75 million. It certainly had a lot going for it, through the songs of U2's Bono and The Edge, direction by Lion King's Julie Tamer, and it was based upon a beloved Marvel superhero. And it also featured amazing stunts and acrobatics and actors flying above the audience. But instead, it became more known for the numerous injuries in the cast, as well as the huge cost overruns. Jeremy Gerard, a reporter for Bloomberg News, not only reported on the show, but reviewed it three times. Spider-Man will be legendary because of the cost and because of the injuries and because of the ridiculous press attention that was paid to it. But ultimately, it's a bad show. I'm a $65 million circus tragedy. Most of the time when Broadway tries to be the movies, it's a terrible failure. And something else that was unique about this production, during its long seven-month preview process, which totaled 180 preview performances, the critics did something they don't normally do before a show opens. They reviewed it, and they reviewed it badly. The lead producer wanted director Julie Tamer to make some changes, but the two of them just couldn't reach an agreement, and eventually Tamer was let go, and a new team was brought in. However, even with that new direction team, the show would eventually reopen to equally scathing reviews. Now, though the show would go on to lose an estimated $60 million, making it the biggest Broadway flop in history, the audiences were flocking to each performance. And it was a rare week that the show didn't earn more than a million dollars at the box office. But despite all the turmoil creative changes, financial upheaval, and injuries, the show did eventually settle into a routine and a rhythm like any long-running show does. And it was around this time that David joined the show. I mean, just to give a little background on my my sort of experience there, and you sort of touched on it, like the first thing, first thing is, is that like, I, I always say that I missed all the fun because I came in six months after it officially opened, um, which had its own challenges as well, because even though I wasn't there while they were creating it, and I actually wasn't even there when the the reboot happened, when Phil McKinley and Chase Brock and um, Roberto Sacasa came in and, and reworked the show, um, uh, I, I did sort of experience them, that show going through, okay, now we're a long running show. How do we how do we make this extremely expensive and wildly technical and dangerous show work? Um, and that was challenging because I was the new guy 
on the block. And I came in at a time when they were doing the first sort of changeover um, of the cast. And, you know, I, it, there, there was, I don't want to say there was a suspicion, but I think that that cast had, because they went through that whole experience, I've never worked with a cast that deserved more to complain than that cast. And I've never met a cast that complained less than that cast, especially the original group. I mean, as the show started shifting and, and people came in and out, you know, it started to normalize a little bit. But in the beginning, because they had been through hell and not just, you know, not just like the, 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 the creation of it, which was difficult and, you know, and, and in constant flux, but also like the press and their, you know, their, their fellow actors getting like devastatingly injured. Um, you know, that cast had found a real family mentality that was very impressive and really special. Um, and so when I came in and didn't have any, you know, like, I had, you know, a little bit of training from like my boss in terms of like him telling me what the, you know, Phil McKinley at that time, telling me what he thought the story was being told and what he wanted it to be. Um, you know, otherwise I didn't have, there, there was no frame of reference for me. Um, and so that was tricky coming in because I had to learn all the stories and like, there were stories on that show about like, well, it's like this because this, terrible thing happened in tech. So it has to be like that. Otherwise there's something, something could go terribly wrong. Um, and, and so I think for that cast in many ways, they were, they were both hungry for a creative voice to be there. And, and almost like it was almost really, I think, great for them to have a fresh take on it because they had been talking, you know, like imagine going through a rehearsal process, you know, normal rehearsal processes for Broadway show are like, you know, what, five weeks. And then the tech and preview process is another six, six weeks. So you're talking like a 12 week process that suddenly, I think it was, I think it was like a year and a half yeah. that they were in constant creative turmoil. Um, and, and I think when I, so, so I think that by the time I got there, they had been so sick of hearing from the same people over and over again with different takes and different ideas that having somebody that had a different take on it was refreshing I also always approach like going into a show like that, like, you know, it has to be a conversation and I don't have all the answers and I'm just here to, to post questions and for you to respond. And then we'll figure out what the right answer is through the conversation. Um, but that was that, that show ultimately was very hard because there were so many restrictions to the creative because the technology was so specific um, so, so like what I found during that was like, it was really hard to like talk about a flying sequence because they had to actually do the things that they were doing in order to create velocity to get to where they had to go. Um, but, but ultimately with that show, like the, the, the scene work was very similar to the rest of, to any normal Broadway show. Like, like, you know, it, it's a very simple story about a, a, a boy who, gets bitten by a spider and becomes a superhero. But, you know, it's about, you know, it's about hubris and humility and it's about, um, which is, which is a great irony in the way that that show was portrayed in the media, you know, with this sort of team of giants full of hubris sort of falling on their face a little bit, um, which, which never, which was never sort of forgotten in that building. Pretty much both critically and financially, Spider-Man was was a failure. It, mm -hmm. But do you think that was it able to pull out something creative and good? Yeah, I mean, I think 
there were so many moments in that show where I, I would watch it and be like, wow, this could, this could have worked. And in many ways, I mean, what they ended up with was not where, was not what like Julie Taymor and Glenn Berger and Bono and The Edge, I think, imagined when they started. I know because I saw the first version and I worked for two years on the version that was presented to, I mean, it ran for three years. So it wasn't like, it, it was just astronomically expensive to run, which is part of the reason why, you know, everybody was like, well, it's selling out. And it's like, yeah, but the running costs on the show were, it, it was huge. And so they were not making money, even though they were selling out, they were not making a lot of money. Um, but, but the creative parts of it were, I mean, the flying sequences were amazing. the the opening The opening sequence, which uh, which was this amazing weaving thing, where you know I forget if it was four or five ensemble girls were strapped into these silks and then pulled up and then sent forward as as these other sheets of fabric were were projected up into the sky and as they went back and forth it created a weave of fabric like there was genius in it and you know and and you know the 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 first it was called New York debut but the first flight of Spider-Man where the whole stage raised up like this and he was over there and then he flipped down and landed right in front of the audience and then flipped back was amazing and i think it was one of those things that, that I, you know, and I, I'm sort of, because I wasn't there and I, I, I feel weird, you know, talking about what their process was. I think they, the, the, the initial creative team had all these amazing images, but the, the, the thing that fell short was, you know, how to tell a clear story with all of that inside of it. And so they wanted to expand the story originally and they, they added Arachne, the spider, the spider goddess. And, and um, she was this new supervillain. And, you know, there are all sorts of stories why that happened, but um, you know, it, it sort of meandered and they lost track of like the heart of that story, which is about, which is literally with great power comes great responsibility and how, if we became a superhero, how do we use that for good and not for selfish gain? There, there was a lot of art in that show and, and it turned into, you know, they, they needed to and, and Phil McKinley and Chase Brock and that team that came in did a great job of creating something within the restrictions of what was already on stage they, they created something that had a through line that I think that, you know, people said it felt theme parkish and it felt, you know, not as, you know, it wasn't high art in the way that, that, um, you know, I think Julie Taymor and, and that team were hoping they would be able to create, but it was something that a lot of people really enjoyed. Um, and, and it was not without merit. It just as a whole, wasn't as amazing as I think people expected it to be. You talk about high art, and I think uh, another venue that gets dismissed is the cruise ship world, which yeah. is where you and I met. And as you said, you know, you never imagined yourself working on a cruise ship and directing for that kind of show. How was that setting different from your other directing? What was really amazing about it was that it wasn't different. But, you know, I mean, we all know, like, there is this sort of idea that, like, cruise ship shows are, like silly reviews that like, you know, like there is sort of like a poo-pooing of cruise ships and, and our production of Footloose, like they said from the get-go, like we want this to be a Broadway show. We want this to be as, as creative as you can make it. And they put their money where their mouth is and they gave us very little restrictions. They were 100%. We, you know, we created a very strange idea for Footloose of this giant bridge structure that sort of spun around and, and created different shapes and spaces that, that was pretty high concept. I think 
by any standard. Um, and they were so excited by it from the, from minute one, um, and really backed us as we were figuring it out. Um, and it was hard. It was a very hard idea to pitch with a model or with, you know, or with pictures that like, you know, just this bridge. And and if you look at the original scenic renderings, it's really hard to figure out what we were thinking when we were doing it. Um, And we had a great, I, you know, like Jason Sherwood and I, and, um, and the, the rest of the team had a great idea for like why the bridge was the right image for the show, but Norwegian really let us run with it. Last summer, when I was going through auditions and submitting myself for Footloose, I did it almost on a whim, not even sure if I really wanted to do cruise ships again. You see, it had been four years since I'd worked on Disney Cruise Line, and I wasn't exactly excited about leaving New York for eight months. But it ultimately came down to a financial decision of auditioning and eventually accepting the role of Reverend Shaw Moore. At first, David also had his own reservations about New York actors auditioning for a cruise line. You know, because the other thing is, it's like, well, who who wants to do cruise ship shows? And that was something that we were all concerned about going in. And like, I'm, I really love great actors and, you know, and, and like acting is the most important thing to me and like singing and all that is really important too. But if you're, if you're not telling a great story, then I, I don't care how pretty your voice is. Like if you're, you know, but um, so we were all really nervous about that. And then we got into these auditions and, you know, people turned out and we found great people for that cast, which was for the original cast and then great people, including you and Thea and Far- Ryan Farnsworth. And, you know, like all of these amazing actors have come out to do the show. And I do think that the, the industry, industry perception of cruise ship shows is changing. And I think that, you know, and I hope that our show is part of that because they have an amazing, it's an amazing resource there. I mean, they just, they have a great stage and they have a lot of money to do amazing stuff. I think we did something great with their complete support. Yeah. I've been a part of those other cruise ship shows that were more review oriented production style. And so coming into this, it was a very different atmosphere as far as like, Hey, let's spend 30 minutes and talk about the character in the scene, which is something I, I don't even get much of that in the regional stuff that I do, you know? So, Uh so to even do that on a cruise ship, I think was great. And did you get your start in acting or has, have you always kind of been on the other side of the table for the most part? I have never professionally acted, which people are often shocked about because I'm, I'm like obsessed with actors and I love talking about scenes and I love talking about objectives and I love talking about, you know, characters and, and, and sense, you know, all of that stuff. But I, it was, you know, it was never my dream to be an actor and actually directing was something that I was, I I mean, I'm very lucky. I came from, I grew up on Long Island and I had this amazing theater program in my high school that did, we did eight shows a year, five of which were completely student run. So like our drama teacher, George Lazidis, who who is like my absolute mentor, my, my hero, um, he would not, he wouldn't even show up until the end for these five shows. And we do like student written one acts and but what it allowed all of us to do was whatever we wanted. And so I actually really wanted to be a a lighting designer. Um, And interestingly enough, when I applied to college, I actually applied as a set designer because for whatever reason, um, 
I was told that there were there was no such thing as an undergraduate directing program. And I love design and I that's where I started anyway. So I went there. But in high school, our senior year, we were allowed to direct. And so I had stage managed. I did lighting design, scenic design. I acted a little bit in high school. Um, and then when I started directing, it was just like, oh, like I just wanted to be involved in all of it. <laughs> um, and so it just made sense. And then um, I continued to do a lot of lighting design because Fordham is also a very um, uh, experiential program where like we did, you know, there are all these studios and like every, every week there are two shows that are run by students and they have a really robust playwriting program that, you know, so you're, oh, you're constantly just doing, doing, doing. So directing sort of found me because I was just like, I want to do it all. Um, and then, you know, Fordham really galvanized my vocabulary with actors and then also my associate work as well with, you know, learning, you know, I, I don't know how many directors I've worked with, but I've worked with, you know, these amazing visual artists like Des Mackinoff and then these incredible play directors like Doug Hughes and everyone in between, including like Walter Bobby, who's like such a great resource for so many different things. He's like the best collaborator, but like I've learned so many different strategies for directing through my associate work. So like, I'm sort of the amalgamation of all of those directors, which I'm really proud of. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I never, I never wanted to act, but I learned how to have those conversations and be excited by those conversations just because I'm obsessed with story. Because when, when it comes to being in front of a camera or performing on stage in front of an audience, I mean, it, it takes a certain amount of, of confidence and ego. And so have you found that directing takes that similar degree of self-assuredness to helm a production? Yeah, I do. I think that it's, you know, I always say, like, I mean, you have to come up with the first idea, but you don't have to come up with the idea that you end up with. You know what I mean? But you have to be, you have to be arrogant enough and self-assured enough to be like, yeah, that's a better idea. I'm going to take it. Do you know what I mean? And, and that doesn't, and, and taking it is too strong a word, but like, I really view this as a collaboration. So, so like anybody that sits in the room and has 40 people staring at them and you're supposed to just talk, like you have, there, there has to be something going on there that you think that you are worthy to be in front of those people. And, and, and I think that, I don't know. It just always felt comfortable in a weird way to me. Um, and it's terrifying. Like I, I never sleep before the first night of the first day of rehearsal. Cause it's always like the thing, like, I don't know what, I have nothing to say. I have nothing to offer. Like it's going to be a mess. And, and I, which I think is the same for actors. Like I think that there's just, we're all terrified all the time. And if you're not, then I go, what's, what's wrong with you? Yeah. But I think that if you can overcome that fear, you must be self-assured in some way. Yeah. I don't notice it as much whenever I'm doing theater, but I definitely, when I'm doing commercials or I'm behind the camera or something, there's so much like chitter chatter that goes on behind that camera. I'm sitting there, we're like on a hold, they're chit-chatting about something and I've just, you know, done a scene or a second take and now we're, they're chatting and then they come back to me with a third or fourth. And so I, you know, of course, in my mind, I'm going, oh, my God, they've, they're questioning hiring me. They're questioning, why did I, why am I doing this? So especially for us actors, that fear that am I doing the right thing is always a part of our brain. And I, I will tell you, I will assure you that that shitter chatter is generally like, I don't know what the fuck is going on. <laughs> like, do you have any ideas? Do you have any help? I mean, I do think that that's a thing, too. I mean, and, and directors, we feel, I mean, to to reassure you, like, I often 
you know, on breaks and stuff, you'll see actors talking over there and it's like, do they hate the way the scene is going? Like, do they hate, <laughs> do they hate my ideas? Like, did I, did I shut them down? Did I, you know, and I, and I think that, that we have those conversations on the other side too. And, you know, and then it's also, I think it's also helpful to just like, sometimes I just have to remind myself, like, they're not talking about you. Like, stop. <laughs> if they are talking about you, they're going to say something like it probably won't be as pointed as what they're saying there, but they're going to come back and be like, so, Hmm the way that you did that, could you change that? Or like an actor will often come and be like, I don't know what you want. Like, just tell me. And what is the toughest part about being a director? Is it dealing with us actors? Is, is that the pressure from the producers, the, the voices on the design team? I think that the hardest thing about directing is the hardest thing for any of us is, am I doing it right? And it's not about direct. It's not about, am I directing right? It's about like, like I remember specifically on Footloose, there was a day where I don't remember what we were doing, but it was something like Nick Henkel, who choreographed it, and I worked really closely during that whole process, and James Cunningham, the, the music director. And I remember something wasn't going right, or we couldn't figure out how to move the bridge, or like there was some story thing that wasn't working. And I remember going home and calling my, my girlfriend and saying like, I don't think I'm very good at this. And I, I just think, I, I think this is it. I don't, I don't think that I can do this anymore. And, and, you know, and I think that everybody goes through those lows in a rehearsal process. Like, I think that that's, if you're not going through those lows, then you're missing it. You know, like you're missing something because then suddenly you think it's all going well. And I think, especially when you're creating something new, um, and I, just to keep tagging onto that Footloose example, like that production was completely ours. And there was no, when we started, there was no 90 minute version of that script. And we made that with, you know, Dean Pitchford and Walter Bobby, who wrote the book, created a version of the show that had never been done before. And then we were also changing things as we were going. Um, but, you know, everybody has hiccups and everybody feels like, their failures at some point in a process. And the important thing is to come out the other side. Um, I think what makes people that do what we do brave is that there's, there's an inability to let vulnerability stop you from doing what you want to do. And, and I think that a lot of careers, people don't have to be exposed. People don't have to be vulnerable in the same way. And like, we're, we're dealing with human psychology, blending our own psychology into what we're creating on stage. And I think if you're not, if you're exposing yourself in that way and not going home sometimes and being like, I, this isn't, I'm not doing this right. Then it's not worth doing. If that makes sense. Yeah. Because there is so much of, of ourselves and our viewpoints and yeah. how we see the world or how we're at least seeing this world of the play that it is very personal. And so when it's not working, then it's something we yeah. did. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It's entirely. Yeah, it feels that way. And even though it's not like, I mean, how many people work on a show? And like, you can't you can't pinpoint any one person. I mean. because I'm a director, I'm always like, well, the director messed it up because in the development process, they should have been asking these questions and they clearly weren't. And it's like, well, I wasn't there and I've worked on enough things. And I've also had failures that, you know, there are a million reasons why something doesn't work and you don't know where it started and you don't know why the choices were made to end up where they were, but it's, it's extremely hard and you don't get points for effort. Like in, in our business, like if it doesn't work, if what people see they don't like, 
it doesn't matter how hard you worked and how bad it was when you got on board, whether you're an actor, a director, even a writer, like even a writer that like wrote something that they were like, I don't think this is any good. And someone was like, I think it's great. And then they're going through the process, trying to make it better and work on it. It's like, no one sees the amount of work and the amount of blood, sweat, and tears, unless you're through one of those processes. And then like with theater, it's like, well, here's the opening. You got to open something and that's it. You know, there's no, there's yeah, no way to say sure. like, no, it didn't work. We need another, si-. I mean, you could, but like at a certain point, the money dries up. Now, what's it like sitting in the back of the theater and watching a show that you've directed come together? That must be a sense of satisfaction. Or- oh, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's like, they always say the, the final dress is supposed to be terrible so that the first, the first performance is great. And have you found that to be true? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know what? It's a funny thing. Like, I don't know if it's true, but it certainly makes it feel better when there's a crappy <laughs> final dress <laughs> to just be like, oh, well, you know, like, thank God this was bad. Right. We got this out of our system. Um, but yeah, I mean, because, there, you know, I've never worked on a show where from beginning to end, it was all like rosy and everyone was like, this is going to be the best thing ever. I mean, the peaks and valleys are so severe. And, you know, like, I know I've been a part of shows too, where you go through tech and you're like, this is amazing. And then you do the run through and you're like, what were we thinking? And that sort of swing is, is really hard to manage. And, and, but also I think, I mean, I found with the further along I go with time, like those swings become easier because you can just say like, this is normal. Like this is the, the fact that you're even not happy with it is says something good that like, you're going to fix it. You're going to, you're at least thinking that, no, that's not working. That's not working. So one, so yeah, because of that, you know, how stressful putting something together is when you sit in the back and it's working, it's like, wow. And it's, we, we created that. Like, and, and I had a part of that and, and that's, that's the best feeling. Um, and, you know, I don't know, pride, feeling proud of something is, is the best feeling, I think. And certainly from working with you and and you've even mentioned it here that collaboration is so important and really working together. And so in what ways can us actors make your job easier? And, and also how do we make it harder? I I just want an actor to be part of the conversation. Like it's weird because I think, I think directors are, everyone's an individual. And so it's hard for me to make like a blanket statement because like what I want is for you to say, I don't agree. And then for me to say, sometimes it's like, what? But sometimes it's like, okay, cool. Why? Help me, help me understand. Because at the end of the day, if, if an actor doesn't believe in what story they're telling, then the audience isn't going to believe the story that they're telling. And if we're, if we can't find some sort of middle ground, then we're sunk. You know, and I, th- I actually think jumping back to the, an, the earlier conversation that we we're having, I actually think that me looking like a child helps that in some ways, because it's not like some like, you know, bearded, old, sagely wise man <laughs> sitting there that, that's supposed to have all the answers. Like, I want to be as approachable as an actor needs me to be in order to have a really exposed conversation about how they relate to this character, how they relate to this situation and, and what story we want to tell together about this moment. I remember one moment when, I forget what scene it was, but you and I were working together. You had, you had said something about, all right, well, well let's, let's do this. You know, we're, we're going for this in the scene. And, and I think there was like a moment, and you must have read my face, because I know in my mind I was going, how does that, but why am I, huh? Like, and you, you must have seen that. And so you, as you said, what, 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 what do you want to do? 
you basically you basically kind of have to be a psychologist and kind of figure out what's in our brain and try to get that onto the stage. Oh yeah, I mean, I I'm watching, uh, you know. I have to be a good therapist and I have to pay attention to you because, you know, and sometimes people are just thinking like there are oftentimes that I'll get like, Oh, what's going on with that person. And they're just like, Oh, I'm just thinking, but sometimes it's really like, you know, it, it'll help somebody say like, I just don't understand what you want. Or like, I really don't agree with you. It makes it more challenging. I think to, to, to want to be aware of an actor's experience. And I've also, you know, I've worked with directors that are not interested in that and they're very successful and they do great work. Um, but it's just never been my style. Um, and whether that's because I'm an empath or whatever, you know, whatever my therapist would want to say. Um, but, but I think that it helps. I think it helps to, to say like, hey, I'm on your team. Like, what are you, what's bothering you? Help, tell me. And let's, then let's figure out how to fix it. I mentioned earlier that David worked on nine Broadway shows, both musicals and plays. In those productions, he assisted directors like Doug Hughes, Walter Bobby, Eric Schaefer, Lawrence Connor, and Ivo Van Hove. And it was arguably the greatest Broadway director that helped him land his first internship. So, with all these influences, is there one that sticks out? One that he wants to emulate and pattern his own directing style after? No, because there are, there are parts of, I mean, I mean that sincerely, like, because I, you know, there are parts of all of them that I want to emulate. And there are parts of all of them that I do emulate. Um, so, you know, I, I just hope that, like, working with all of them has made me, I know, well, I know that working with all of them has made me a better director. So there isn't one. I mean, and everybody wants to be like Hal Prince. So, like, if, and I never worked for him, uh, but I did, I, we, we were pen pals for a long time. Um, and there was so much just being in the room in, in, a, in an office with him asking me questions that was, like, illuminating. Um, how did that relationship form? How did you get to know Hal Prince? Well, I, I was a very self-assured uh, 18 year old and, or, or maybe 19. And I wrote, it was right before September 11th and I wrote him a letter and the first line, I, sh I wish I had it. I should go find it. But the first line of it was dear Mr. Prince, it was something like, you don't know me. I have no credentials, but you want to work. You want me to work for you or something like that. Or, or you want me to be your assistant. And then it went on and on about, you know, and I had, you know, I'd always been a big fan of his work and Kiss of the Spider Woman, which is not his most famous show was actually very influential and, and, and really made me think about being a director. Um, and so he wrote me back. And as he does, you know, like tons of young directors have Hal Prince stories and, and everything that they say is true. He wrote me back. He wanted to meet. We met. We had a great conversation. We continued to correspond. Uh, I, I had asked him if I could sit on the tech in on the tech rehearsals for Hollywood Arms, which was the play, the Carol Burnett play. And there I was. I sat there and I just watched. Wow. I had no, you know, no task. And then um, he also... I directed Spring Awakening as my thesis in college and unknowingly that's his favorite play. And so he was very excited about that. And he wanted uh, me, he couldn't, he was doing bounce in Chicago or something and he wanted me to send him a tape. And I was like, all right, I'll send him a tape. I sent him the tape. He watched it. He called me into the office. He gave me notes on it. He was very, you know, he was very impressed and um, he was wonderful. Um, and then he actually weirdly set me up with what was my first 
um, it wasn't a job, it was an internship, but I sat in on the rehearsals for Sweeney Todd with um, Elaine Page at City Opera, which was his production that Artie Masella, who's a, a fantastic director in his own right, um, was directing. Um, and that was really my first thing on that scale. Like, you know, I mean, it's New York City Opera, it was Lincoln Center, it was a huge scale. You know, I always joke that, well, Hal gave me the confidence to just start telling people that I should be in the room with them <laughs> because it did like he really did. Like, you know, a 19 year old writing this crazy letter and then him saying, that's cool. You're interesting. Makes you go, well, I'll just write these other directors and I'll work with them. And that often happened and, and it worked out. So many times in this business, it's all about taking a risk, going out on a limb. For David, it was writing that letter. It was pushing his way into those circles of influence, into those productions he wanted to be a part of. For us actors, it can be the choice of roles that we go after, the the bold choices that we make in the audition room, the way we use our voice and position to not only change theater, but the community around us as well. Three years ago, when Dewey Cadell and I first started this podcast, it was a risk. It was a chance we were taking. And even though he's gone on to do his own work, it was certainly a joint effort to get this podcast off the ground. It continues to be a labor of love for me each and every week. Sometimes episodes take off and get hundreds of downloads, while some episodes never even reach three digits. But... Through it all, I am so grateful that you are here listening and supporting this podcast through your generous donations, as well as spreading the word about wonderful guests like David here today. Please do fill out that podcast survey and let me know how I'm doing here. It'll be a great help as the podcast moves forward and into the rest of this year and next. You can find a link to that survey in the show notes or at why I'll never make it. Well, stay tuned for the next episode when David and I go through the final five questions all about bucket lists and mentors and some of the best advice he's received. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver Jones. Join me next time as we talk more about why I'll never make it. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.